it doesn't happen very often. See, normally we have a list of words of interest that have been brought to our attention by a variety of means. Some come to us from listener suggestions either sent in via email, Twitter, or through the official GM Word of the Week Discord. We take each suggestion on board and evaluate it to see if it produces results potentially of episode length or if it needs to sit around and percolate until it finds a home in another word episode because it needs that sort of support to be useful and good. Unicorn, for instance, was a word brought to us by one of our listeners that turned into an episode all its own. Other words we find just by virtue of our natural curiosity. We see or hear something in our environment and get to wondering about how they got to be what and where they are. So we do a bit of digging and assuming it turns up something interesting, unexpected or remarkable, it gets an episode all its own. Otherwise it too has to wait until something else can be added to it. All of November came about because of a simple curiosity about the development of the fork. Another source for words is the media we consume, whether it be a Twitter timeline, a news report, some mention on a TV program, an article we read, or a book, we'll frequently come across words to add to the list that give us pause when hearing about them. So we do the research and either find a story worth telling or not. Our Sasquatch episode, for instance, came about because of reading we did a long, long time ago that captivated our imagination. And that's generally how it works. We collect words from a bunch of different sources and add them to the list. Some get used right away, and others have to wait. Which is what happened this time. Months and months and months ago, we read a book about explorers and adventurers looking for lost South American civilizations, and in discussing the long tradition of exploration they took part in, we came across the story of a desk. And sure, you, like us, may not think much about the story of a desk. It might just be a passing mention that barely captures your interest at first. Nonetheless, it was an idea. A little, small smackerel of information which we filed away in our ever-growing list of words. We read the basics and background info and decided it wasn't quite something we could build an episode around. Close, but no cigar. There wasn't yet enough reason to do a desk-based episode. So we set it aside and waited for something else to happen. And like we said at the start, it doesn't happen often. Mostly, the words in the list sit there quietly, waiting for their opportunity to be part of something else, all patient and well-behaved like. But all of a sudden, last week, the desk was back. And in certain circles, it was making much of a much about itself, conspicuous by its absence. You wouldn't believe how surprised we were to learn that the piece of furniture we'd had sitting on our list for the better part of a year had suddenly thrust itself back into the limelight and was now worthy of, nay, desperately in need of, just the sort of explanations we provide here, all by itself. So, without further ado, we present to you the story of the Resolute Desk. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. The story of the Resolute Desk starts a couple of centuries ago. 
One of the problems with shipping and trade in the 18th and 19th centuries was that in order to get something from, say, England to almost anywhere else in the world that wasn't Europe, you had to do one of two things. Either sail south all the way around the tip of Africa and then east, or south and then all the way around the tip of South America and then west. Neither of which was particularly fun nor extremely safe, and both of which took a lot of time. Which, as we all know, is also money. And no one likes spending more money than they absolutely have to. In order to save as much money and time as was possible, the British Empire found it vitally important to look for other, faster routes, and let's face it, new markets too, in order to ship their goods around the world. And it seemed to them there ought to be a route that let them sail directly west, across the top of Canada, to reach the not only western ports in the Americas more quickly and safely, but also to reach Asian ports from that direction as well. Which is where the idea of finding a northwest passage came from. It's just islands and water up there north of Canada, though admittedly much of the water was in the form of ice at the time. Which was the tricky part. Could they find a way through the ice from eastern to western Canada that was relatively cost-effective to navigate when compared to the southern route? Because remember, in business, the first rule of making money is to spend as little of it as possible. If it was overall cheaper to go the southern route, even if it took more time than the northern route, then south they would go. So England, as well as other European countries, sent out a number of expeditions looking for any navigable northwest passage they could find. They were only slightly hampered by the fact that no one really understood anything about the environment up there in northern climes. For example, the thing about the ice? Well, for the longest time, it was thought that there must be a clear water passage near the North Pole, because everyone knows seawater can't freeze. For proof, they offered up the example of another famous explorer, Captain Cook, who said he'd run into icebergs made entirely of fresh water. The assumption was, apparently, that these icebergs had come from freshwater sources that opened into the ocean, rather than being frozen chunks of ocean themselves. Go figure. In any case, many of the early expeditions ran into immediate problems trying to make the crossing when it was discovered that, surprise, ocean water does freeze, but at a much lower temperature than fresh water, which meant that the environments these expeditions were trying to cross were also much colder than expected. Disasters of one sort or another abounded. And then along came a man named Sir John Franklin. Well, the Sir part came along later, just to be clear. Very few people start out by naming their child Sir. Anyway, Franklin had already led a reasonably successful naval career in various actions like the Battle of Trafalgar when he was picked in 1819 to head the Copper Mine Expedition. The Copper Mine Expedition was intended to chart part of the north coast of Canada from Hudson Bay to the mouth of the Copper Mine River. To give you some idea how successful the whole thing was, Franklin fell into a river about halfway through the expedition and had to be rescued before he drowned. By the end of the three-year expedition, over half of the 20-man party had died, mostly from starvation. At least one person was suspected of killing one of the others, and some were thought to have engaged in cannibalism. Nothing was ever proven, though. 
In recognition of his expedition, Franklin earned the nickname The Man Who Ate His Boots, because those who did survive did so on a diet of shoe leather and lichen. Hardly a rousing success. So naturally, in 1825, they sent him out again. Franklin had returned to England from the copper mine expedition and almost immediately married and had a child. However, his wife had died in 1825 of tuberculosis, so perhaps someone thought they were doing him a kindness by keeping him busy. Fortunately, this trip was much more successful thanks to better organized supplies, and hardly anyone had to die at all. In the course of the expedition, which lasted another two years or so, he managed to chart and map several portions of the area around the Mackenzie River and Canada's northwest coast, as well as maybe helping to invent the sport of hockey at Great Bear Lake. By the end of the expedition, Franklin and several others involved in various parts of it had mapped all but 500 kilometers, or roughly 360 sheppies for our American listeners, of Canada's northern coastline. Several years pass. Franklin marries again. He's appointed Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land in 1837, which you and I know better as Tasmania today, a notably warmer location than his previous expeditions, and he holds the post for six years, during which his wife helps establish universities, museums, and gardens with his support. And then, in 1845, Franklin finds himself in charge of yet another expedition to finally fill in those missing 500 kilometers of Canadian coast, a blank spot on the map nobody likes. By this point, Sir Franklin is 59 years old. He's not the first choice for the expedition, but since Sir James Clark Ross, himself a veteran of several important Arctic expeditions and a much younger man, turns down the offer to lead, the offer comes to Franklin instead. Now, by rights, things should have gone as well as they could possibly have hoped. The British took everything they'd learned on previous expeditions and applied them to ensuring the success of this one. The Franklin expedition was better provisioned and better prepared than any previous expedition had ever been. His ships, HMS Erebus and Terror, were among the stoutest ever built, rigged and constructed not just to keep off the harsh Arctic cold, but reinforced as icebreakers and intended to hold together even under the crushing pressure of freezing Arctic ice. They were both heated and powered by steam, which meant not only would they keep the cold off the men, they also needn't depend on the changeable winds for propulsion. Three years worth of food was stored aboard in both traditional preserving methods and tin cans. In May of 1845, the expedition set sail from England under the command of Franklin. Aboard the two ships were 24 officers and 110 men. Along the way, the expedition stopped in Scotland and Greenland, where they topped up on supplies and then sailed west towards Whitefish Bay in Canada. Which they missed. Which some might take as foreshadowing. They knew where Whitefish Bay was. It was well marked on the maps. Everyone should have known how to sail to get there, but they still managed to miss it and had to backtrack until they eventually found it. Not a brilliant start. In July of 1845, both the Erebus and Terror were seen by two whaling ships as they waited for the weather to clear so they could sail across Lancaster Sound 
and begin the expedition to fill in those missing 500 kilometers. And then, that's it. The ships simply disappeared into the icy waters off northern Canada and were never heard from again. Well, not never again, but it certainly would be a very long time indeed before anyone ever knew what happened to them and where they might have gone. 2014, in fact. It's a fascinating story once it's all told, but for our purposes here, we're concerned with a different part of the tale. Back home, once it became clear that something terrible had happened to the Franklin expedition, Lady Franklin kicked into high gear and insisted that the British Admiralty find out what had become of her husband and the crews. Her cause was soon taken up by members of Parliament and the various newspapers of the day. And it took some convincing, because frankly, the Admiralty was used to losing contact with its various expeditions for years at a time, only to have them pop up more or less fine and report in. So a disappearance of only two years wasn't much reason for concern, they felt. Still, eventually they gave in as the public interest in Franklin's fate grew and grew, until it was something of a national quest to discover the whereabouts of Franklin's lost expedition, as it came to be known. Finally, in 1848, three years after their last sighting, overland expeditions were sent out to try to locate Franklin and his crew. Then... James Clark Ross, who had turned down heading the expedition in the first place, set sail to Lancaster Sound to see if he could find any trace of them, while Henry Kellett, another officer, took a ship to the west coast and attempted to locate them from that direction. All these efforts failed. Finally, in 1850, three graves and some used supplies were discovered on Beachy Island, but no further clues were found to the whereabouts or the fate of the Franklin expedition. Another search expedition was sent out, which also proved unsuccessful. So unsuccessful, in fact, that not only did they fail to find anything of Franklin, they were forced to abandon four of the five expedition ships in the pack ice, and the commander of the expedition was court-martialed, though acquitted. The four abandoned ships, HMS Pioneer, Assistance, Intrepid, and Resolute remained trapped in the ice for two years. Resolute was originally a merchant ship that was specially converted to Arctic duty along with the rest of the expedition because the British had simply run out of regular naval ships equipped to make the journey. Resolute was given a stronger set of timbers, internal heating, and someone decided to stick a polar bear on her as a figurehead. Still, none of it really helped. By 1853, the crew of Resolute was sledging the ice looking for signs of Franklin, but instead found the crew of the ship Investigator. They were in need of rescue because their ship was icebound and had been since 1850. Not a good sign. Instead of taking the hint, Resolute took advantage of a break in the weather to sail on again, still looking for Franklin, this time headed eastward. Unfortunately, a cold front blew in in August of 1853 and encased the ship in ice, unable to do anything except drift like an ice cube on the current. By the spring of 1854, the Resolute was still icebound, and the order was given to abandon her. The men faced a hard march across ice to get back to base camp at Beachy Island. Ultimately, they did manage to make the trek under extreme hardship, but Resolute remained lost and adrift in the Arctic ice. 
It wasn't until 1855 that she was found again. Still icebound but adrift 1,200 miles from where she was initially abandoned by an American whaling ship. Captain of the whaler split his crew, freed the stuck ship, and both the Resolute and the whaler eventually sailed into the harbor at New London, Connecticut. Now, just about this time, there was a lot of tension between England and the U.S. People were mad about the abuse of fishing rights off the coasts of Canada, and Belize was something of a touchy subject because neither the U.S. nor the U.K. could agree on who owned the place. The San Juan Islands were a hot spot where both countries had already been taking pot shots at one another, and things were generally heating up between Britain and the U.S. in ways that made people worry about having to go to war with them again to straighten things out. And then a senator from Virginia, James Murray Mason, had a kind of brilliant idea. Why not, he thought, buy Resolute, fix it all up again nice and shiny, and give it back to England as a present and peace offering? It was, after all, big news and pretty significant in the recent history of Britain. Maybe it would help settle things down. He put a bill before Congress to buy the ship for $40,000 and do just that. And the bill passed. So, on December 16th of 1856, U.S. Naval Commander Henry Hartstein arrived in England aboard the newly restored and refitted Resolute and, after a tour by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, presented the ship to them as a gesture of goodwill and peace. Darned if it didn't work. Talk of war ceased, and in 1856, Britain and the U.S. appointed a boundary commission to sort out the San Juan Islands to everyone's satisfaction, which they eventually did after a little more pushing and shoving. Tensions settled down everywhere, and things began to be worked out by more peaceful means. Returning the Resolute was definitely the thing to do. Except now, it meant the ship was too important to do the thing that Lady Franklin and several American interests wanted it to do, which was to go out looking for Franklin again. See, Lady Franklin thought that the return of the ship would lead to a refreshed interest in the fate of her husband, which it did, and that England would respond to that interest by launching yet another expedition to go look for him, which it did not. No, 11 years later, it was very, extremely unlikely that Franklin would still be found alive. And, as we said, the ship was just too important now to risk losing again in the icy Arctic seas. The Resolute would spend the rest of her service life sailing close to home. They even refused to let Lady Franklin borrow the ship to mount her own private expedition. Pretty much everyone else had given up hope of ever finding out what happened to the lost Franklin expedition. By 1879, Resolute had served her useful life and was taken to a breaker yard to be broken up. But, rather than be completely destroyed, Queen Victoria had other plans. In 1880, she did the official governmental equivalent of knocking on the White House door of President Rutherford B. Hayes and saying, Hey, look what I made for you! It was a desk, constructed from the English oak timbers of HMS Resolute, and would be from then on referred to as the Resolute Desk. And it's a very impressive desk, being designed as it was for the use of two people at once, the president and his secretary, one facing the other, making it a desk with two fronts. 
and it was built right there in the shipyards where Resolute was taken apart by a royally appointed cabinet maker. The various design plans for the Resolute desk are available online, but its key features include a front for president's use fitted with six drawers in pedestals and three doors in top, a front for secretary's use fitted with two cupboards partitioned for ledgers with drawers under and three doors on top, the door panels to contain busts of Her Majesty Queen Victoria and the President of America encircled by laurel wreaths, pedestal ends with two outer and inner panels to contain such Arctic subjects as may be selected, 10 bust brackets of such Arctic explorers as may be selected with names engraved on plates fixed on scrolls under, representations of the four quarters of the globe on four inner angles of top frame, national flags of England and America on the four outer angles of top frame, overbusts on the ends representative of Arctic and Antarctic circles on top frame, handles representative of friendship, male and female, on the drawers and top to be covered in Morocco leather and embossed to order. And as impressive as it is, contrary to popular belief, the Resolute Desk is not the only presidential desk. In fact, the president is free to use whatever desk he likes for use in any of several locations within the White House. There are at least five others that have seen use just in the Oval Office alone. And the desk isn't done changing. FDR had the desk slightly modified by adding a panel to the secretary front in order to hide his leg braces, thereby changing it to a large one-person desk. Other presidents have had various bases added to or subtracted from the desk over the years for reasons of comfort and height. And, though it is hard to know exactly which desk was in use in which part of the White House by which president, it is known that the Resolute Desk was in use somewhere in the White House from the time of its presentation to President Hayes until 1963 when President Johnson allowed the desk to leave the White House as part of a touring exhibition of the JFK Library after Kennedy's assassination, at the end of which it was sent to the Smithsonian. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter asked for the desk to be returned to the White House, where he again used it in the Oval Office. Since then, with the exception of President George Herbert Walker Bush, the desk has been the Oval Office desk for every president. Bush elected to use the C&O desk instead, which has a background in the railroad. But that's the story of the Resolute Desk, about which there has been so much fuss of late. From Arctic expedition to peacemaking, it has had a long, interesting, storied history which is mostly symbolic of the English Age of Exploration, but also of the relationship between Britain and the U.S. Every president who sits behind it is reminded of that. And now, you can be too every time someone mentions it. No matter what circumstances bring it to light again. This has been GM Word of the Week, and we hope you've enjoyed the story of the Resolute Desk. No Shave November is at an end. Together, we helped raise over $500, so thank you very much to all of you who helped raise money for cancer research and prevention. Your contributions are very much appreciated. 
This show exists because of contributions from you. Thanks to the support of our patrons on Patreon, buyers of shirts, and generous listeners on Libera Pay, we can keep the show coming to you on a regular basis, one interesting word at a time. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to have more such episodes in the future, visit our support page by going to gmwordoftheweek.com and clicking the yellow banner at the top. Any contribution is greatly appreciated. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, whose desk has been through a lot, really, yet still manages to perform its basic function. Music was, as always, provided by Blue Dot Sessions. It's pointless to have a nice, clean desk, because it means you're not doing anything.